the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. G'day. You're tuned into the Country Hour. I'm Jessica Hayes and it is so good to be catching up with you this afternoon. Soon you'll be getting an update on the state's grain harvest record still continuing to fall across the port zones, but still plenty more grain yet to hit the bins. I'll have all the latest totals for you in the next half hour. And a bit later, you're headed to the Great Southern where one farmer has completely changed the format of his shearing shed. It's all about making life easier for shearers with the ultimate goal of getting more workers back on the stands. It worked really well. We've worked on on. On average, shearing another 10% cheaper day, and at the end of the day, the shearers walked out uh, like they're ready to come back to work. More from gardener farmer Jared King soon about that setup and why it's worked so well in its first year. And before the news at one, all the details today of today's Katanning sheep sale with MLA's Tracy Kilner. First up, though, farmers in the United States using John Deere machinery now have the right to repair their own farm equipment. Now it comes after the machinery manufacturer. And the American Farm Bureau Federation signed a memorandum of understanding this week. Now, it'll enable individuals to buy software tools that'll allow them to take their equipment to a dealer of their choice to fix the gear. Here in Australia, though, no such arrangements exist yet. And that means that farmers are often left with software malfunctions that can leave very expensive machinery sitting idle in paddocks during very busy times. Fiona Smith, uh, Fiona Simpson rather, is the president of the National Farmers Federation. Fiona, good afternoon. Firstly, what do we know about this memorandum of understanding? Look, we know that John Deere has announced that it signed an MOU with the American Farm Bureau, uh, which will guarantee farmers basically the right to repair John Deere equipment through accessing some of the software that is so important to actually work out what's wrong with the equipment and get it going again. Uh, at the moment, we only understand that it applies to John Deere and John Deere equipment, but that's certainly a massive step forward for those American farmers. Okay. Arrangements like this still don't exist in Australia? No, they don't. And it's very frustrating. It's something that the National Farmers Federation and our members in every state and a commodity group have been calling for now for a number of years. We really believe that it puts farmers at a complete disadvantage, particularly at peak times like harvest when things can go wrong with machinery and they can't even actually access a local technician to work out what's wrong with it, let alone fix it themselves because of the onerous agreements that they, the manufacturers have put in place. Now, this isn't a new issue. It's something the NFF has long lobbied for. The Productivity Commission held an inquiry into right to repair in 2021, but there has been no formal regulatory changes. So what is the state of play in Australia? The state of play here, 12 months on from the Productivity Commission releasing their report in December 2021, recommending wholesale changes and and, um, actually legislative changes has not changed at all. We've continued our conversations with the manufacturers and these conversations obviously are ongoing, but basically it's the same situation for farmers in Australia now as it was and that's when their machinery breaks down. They need need to go through the uh, appropriate technician as advised by their dealer or their manufacturer and not access local technicians themselves. Right. I'm keen to clarify whether you're keen to see government-led reform in this space or would you be keen to see a similar MOU struck between machinery manufacturers like John Deere and, say, organisations like the NFF here in Australia? 
Well, look, I think we really are in favour of government-led reform. This is a competition issue. This is seriously impacting farmers on farms in regional and rural communities every single day. It's creating a monopoly situation in some communities and it's anti-competitive. So we really think that to achieve the wholesale change that we need in the space, we do need an ask and we've written again to the government today to ask that they lead in this reform. Uh, if we do it like the US, then it's manufacturer by manufacturer with voluntary agreements and voluntary codes and it really doesn't achieve the same outcome in as quick a time as if we had government change in the space. Failing that, of course, we'll continue to talk to, to John Deere, to Case IH, to our major manufacturers here in Australia to see if we can also strike the same agreement as our American colleagues have done in the Farm Bureau. So you've written to government. What is on the wish list and what is the time frame that you're hoping for this to be implemented? Well, seriously, 12 months on, we know we've had a change of government in that space, but we it is something that has been ongoing for a number of years. We do need reform now, and it needs to be led by government. Uh, it needs to be changing the re relevant legislation to make sure that Australian farmers can actually be treated in the same way that their American colleagues are. Uh, otherwise, it's a competition issue. You know, we are actually incurring costs and difficulties and breakdowns here on farms that our American colleagues are not. And it's actually just putting us at a complete disadvantage. So for you, it's about levelling the playing field. For, for me, it's definitely about levelling the playing field for farmers, promoting competition in our small rural and regional communities, allowing farmers to actually get on and do the repairs on their machinery in a timely manner, when often time is of the essence in terms of harvest particularly and, and weather events happening. Um, and it's also, of course, ultimately a level playing field across the world, which is what Australia always calls for in terms of uh, trade and uh, the way that we conduct our business globally these days. Do you hope that this development out of the US puts the fire under the government to take this issue seriously? I certainly hope so. And uh, I also hope that it puts the fire under the manufacturers. We have been talking to them for a long time now. We know that they certainly are very active in our rural and regional communities. Their dealerships play an important role in our communities. But we also need to recognise that sometimes it's just not possible for that to occur. And farmers need the right to be able to fix their machinery when it breaks down, to need to need the right to be able to access that important software to, to make sure that they can keep their machinery going and also to promote competition in some of our rural and regional communities. Has there been much pushback from the machinery manufacturers here in Australia when this conversation has come up? No, not at all. Uh, actually, it's something that they've been actively interested in exploring. Uh, but as I say, these conversations have been ongoing for a number of years now. Uh, and perhaps COVID has played a part. But certainly, we will be now going to our colleagues again and saying, this has happened in America. Why not Australia? Fiona, thanks so much for joining me on the WA Country Hour this afternoon. Pleasure. Fiona Simpson, who is the president of the National Farmers Federation, just talking you through why the Federation wants government reform on right to repair laws. And that comes after the American Farm Bureau Federation reached a deal with machinery manufacturer John Deere that will allow farmers to fix their own gear. So what does the farm machinery industry think here in WA? Well, John Henchy is the executive officer of the Farm Machinery and Industry Association of WA. And unlike Fiona Simpson from the NFF, he reckons an MOU similar to the one reached in the US would be the best path forward for industry here in Australia. This is what the industry, certainly in WA or the industry in Australia, would prefer. A memorandum of understanding or a code of practice 
rather than government regulation. It would be more flexible. Government regulation tends to pin you down and is inflexible. So on the initial discussion the industry's had, that's its preference to have some sort of MOU or code of practice. Right. And is that in the works at the moment? Have those discussions started to perhaps have our own version of that? Yes, they have. In fact, the Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia has been working very closely with uh, those involved, and that's the push to uh, get a code of conduct. Right. Okay. Why is your preference for this to be sort of an agreement between industry and machinery companies rather than for government to oversee this? Basically, flexibility. I think without being too unfair, when you get government involved, the flexibility is not there. And quite often, it's determined by people that really don't understand the way business works. So we, we just believe a code of conduct or something else is better and more flexible. Because at the end of the day, the relationship between, generally speaking, the relationship between dealers and customers is very close. Very close indeed. And the last thing we need is something that's going to destroy that uh, relationship. If it did go down the harder line of government oversight in this area, what impact could that have on farm machinery dealerships? Oh, again, lack of flexibility. We'd obviously comply with what uh, whatever was put out. That's, uh, that's the way it goes. But I think you'll find the flexibility would be less than it is at the moment. I mean, when you when you think of the relationship that dealers have with their customers, it's extremely good. In times of severe breakdowns and what, what have you, the number of times that dealers have helped customers in leasing or even loaning product to keep them going, I mean, this is the sort of thing, it could have an impact on that in so much, well, you know, that's this is not the way we're going to go in the future. We're, we're going to have to go down this line or that line. And I think the relationship, which is excellent, is going to going to be destroyed. That's my opinion. That's more of a personal opinion, but that's why the industry would like a memorandum of understanding or a code of conduct to retain that flexibility. I suppose at the moment it's a really busy, it's been a very busy harvest here in Western Australia, and we've got labour shortages at play too. Farmers want to get the job done as quickly as possible, and they want their machinery fixed as quickly as possible when there are breakdowns. How important is that flexibility? Oh, look, absolutely. It's absolutely vital. And I mean, in this day and age where technology is involved and it's absolutely vital that that piece of machinery is kept going as quickly as possible. And that's, and again, that's what uh, dealers generally endeavour to do. And it gets back to my point that uh, I'm aware of, of cases where a machine is broken down and a dealer will uh, either lease or loan a machine to to keep that farmer going while uh, while the piece of machine is repaired. I'm aware uh, in, of instances where engines have been changed to keep that person going. That's the availability of service that's there at the moment. Now, if a customer wants to do it themselves, that's fine. And um, you know, at the moment, they can go to the dealer and say, "Hey, look, I want to I want to purchase a new engine and I want to put it in, but I need to set it up." to get it going, then that capability is there now. Right. I and mean, I suppose the, the argument would be that this would allow there to be more options for people, others, to come on board and help repair those potentially sure. quicker? Yeah, that's the plan. Again, our take on it is that there's obviously people want their right to repair themselves, but the number 
is very, very small in, in our opinion. Mm. But if that's what they want, uh, yeah, the manufacturers are looking at ways that can help them do that. Farm Machinery and Industry Association of WA Executive Officer John Henchy with Steph Sinclair. So as you heard there, he's keen for an MOU between machinery dealers and the Australian agricultural industry, a bit like the one reached between the American Farm Bureau Federation and John Deere. Earlier, you heard from NFF President Fiona Simpson, who favours reform at the government level. What do you think? Do you trust that an effective agreement could be reached with machinery manufacturers in Australia or would you rather see the government take the reins? You can let me know on the text this afternoon. The number is 0448 922604. That number again, 0448 922604. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. 17 past 12 on the Country Hour and it might be mid-January but grain continues to flow into receival sites across the WA Grain Belt with harvest still ticking along. Deliveries into the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, is sitting at 21.9 million tonnes. That's about 600,000 tonnes above previous state record of 21.3 million tonnes with more grain still to come in. 10.4 million tonnes has been received across the Quinana Zone, while there's been 4.2 million tonnes delivered in Albany and 3.1 million tonnes delivered in the Esperance Zone. And the Geraldton Zone has officially topped its all-time record this week. Just over 4 million tonnes has been delivered to CBH within the zone, surpassing the previous year's record, breaking 3.9 million tonnes. CBH Geraldton Zone manager Brianna Peake says she's been pleasantly surprised by the huge volumes that have come in. We've all but finished up harvest now, pretty much, so we've got about four to 5,000 tonnes coming in a day. We just ticked over 4 million tonnes, which is the first for the Geraldton Port Zone, which is great to see. That size of the crop, which is an exceptional effort by the growers up here and great to see them bringing that amount of grain and a great effort by the team to be able to receive that as well. And um, what was the record held before then? Oh, it was last year, so 3.9 million tonnes, 3.89 I think to be specific. And what are some reasons that this year's harvest um, has been yeah, been busting and it's been 4 million, you've broken the record? What's, what can you attribute to that? I think probably what's taken us a little bit by surprise in the Geraldton Port Zone, we had quite a dry spell sort of through June, July, and we just didn't think we'd hit those highs potentially that we got to last year. But I really think the crops performed you know, particularly well and that dry spell didn't impact them as much as we thought. Therefore, the rest of the season carried on very nicely. and It was a really soft, soft, lovely finish. I don't think you could even hope for a nicer finish than we had. And so, yeah, obviously that just allowed the crops to yield and make beautiful, plump grain. It's also very high quality as well. So while in the south we've potentially seen not as much protein, we've got some, some great protein up in the Geraldton Port Zone too, which is fantastic to see and great for the growers. And um, what's the feedback been like from farmers? Have they most of mostly finished up harvest? Largely, I would say. Um, we've got a few growers still delivering. Um, Minginu and Karnamah are still open. Karnamah is one of our most southern larger sites so that's still taking in grain and at the terminal but really probably the majority of growers have finished up and sort of getting prepared and ready for the next year. Hopefully they get a little bit of a break in there as well. Uh, last year our farmers in the Midwest had to face a lot of challenges which they managed to overcome. Was there any challenges similar to that this harvest? There was a little bit of weather at the start which slowed us down but it's, again it's nothing that like we've seen on the south coast which has been a very wet harvest. 
So I think we've been quite lucky up here. Nice quality, a pretty good run, and it's been very warm and dry, which is good harvesting conditions. And I think, you know, largely what you start to see now is the heat kick in, but harvest is really finished before that happens. So I think they've had a, a pretty good harvest run. CBH Group's Brianna Peak discussing that record-breaking harvest in the Geraldton Port Zone with Rachel Clifford. Further south, some grain growers, though, are still crossing the harvest finish line. Ben Oldfield rolled the header out of the paddock earlier this week in West Kendanup, 70 kilometres north of Albany, and he says it's been a ripper season. Fantastic season from start to finish, and if I could choose to have that one back, I would. <laughs> what made this year so special for you? Probably consistent rainfall, I'd say. We had a 580 mil for the year, and which is about 70 mil above average for us. But it was good rainfall right through from the start. We had good subsoil moisture due to a 880 mil rainfall year the year before. Got things going early, and crops got established, and it did get wet through August. But they were crops are well enough established to um, beat that. Probably the only uh, complaint I'd have is that it rained right into the back end of November, which caused some quality issues in early sown barley, but the rest of the crop's quality was fantastic. When did you start harvest? 1st of December, which was the latest start in my farming career. Um, normally we start about mid-November. And finishing on Monday, how late is that for you? That's normal for me. I think last year we finished on the 7th of January and this year we started a week and a half later and yeah we got through it pretty good really. So how's it feel now to be done? I don't know I I, I like harvesting (laughs) especially when you're having a good season so it it is a relief you know the family will be happy to see me home again at a reasonable hour but yeah while the head is going the money's coming in so most of the time I don't want it to end. (laughs) So what's the plan now what's next for you? Tension pretty quickly turns to next season, so we'll get the lime spreader going hopefully at the end of the week. We've also got some summer spraying to do, coupled with we've still got a week's worth of grain to deliver in bags at least, so yeah, we're going to be pretty busy. How would you summarise your season as a whole? Above average. Due to some pretty good marketing of our grain, probably very profitable as well. Do you think next season you could be looking at the same numbers? Yeah, it all depends on grain price, and I think Currently, the outlook is not as positive for grain, but I think the numbers are still there. Um, I mean, unfortunately, with what's going on in Ukraine, that doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. And that kind of, I think, has a big bearing on grain. And we've fought sold grain already for the next season, and that's some quite good pricing. So inputs are obviously gone up. But yeah, look, I think there's still a lot of positivity there with grain. If you can get a good crop, amazing what we've achieved in WA in the last two years for the amount of grain. Hats off to everybody. What are your thoughts on CBH breaking their receiver record? Just think they've done an amazing job. There seems to be a fair few people in the ag industry that want to make CBH the whipping boy and blame them for stuff that doesn't quite go to plan with harvest. But yeah, I can't commend them enough. I just think to handle two years of crop like that, every farmer... Uh, I think there's 3,800 grain growers in WA and they've all increased their capacity at the pace they take the crop off and for CBH to keep pace with that many different businesses is, is quite remarkable. West Kendanup farmer Ben Oldfield with Sophie Johnson. I wonder how are things looking at your place? How's the quality looking? And if you're still going, when are you expecting to finish? You can send me a text 0448 922604. 24 past 12, soon you're off to the Bureau to get the latest weather information. But first, 
An Australian scientist believes a new bee vaccine released in the US could hold vital clues about how to protect bee colonies from disease. Research into the American fowl brood vaccine has brought new information to light, revealing the queen bee can pass immunity onto her young. Dr Emily Remnant from the University of Sydney says this information could be a game changer. So normally when you think about vaccination, you know, you get delivered a piece of a pathogen or an attenuated bacteria and then your immune system produces antibodies and creates an immune memory. But in insects, they don't have antibodies. Their immune system is different to that. So having that immune memory, we're not really sure how it works in insects. There is a phenomenon that's just sort of being discovered now called transgenerational immune priming, which is pretty new and it's where the offspring receives some kind of immune memory from the mother so it's received during embryogenesis. They've come up with a a mechanism for how the memory can be transmitted and it's via this protein called vitellogenin which is another word for it is just the egg yolk protein and vitellogenin is one of the most abundant proteins in the honeybee ovary. So when the queen lays eggs, she deposits a lot of these proteins into the eggs. And it's thought that this protein actually can bind to parts of the pathogen. So any bacterial proteins that are produced get bundled up with vitellogenin and deposited in the embryo. So any of the offspring from that queen that have these vitellogenin pathogen combinations are effectively protected against that pathogen. If it proves to be effective, how significant could this be for the health of beehives and bee colonies going forward and other threats to that health? I think it is promising. However, I think you have to really look at each pathogen one by one. So American fowl brood is extremely widespread. It's one of these bacteria that can lie dormant for years. So basically when a when a colony gets American fowl brood, we essentially destroy the hives by burning them. Now the studies that I've seen on this particular vaccine have promising results, but they show a reduction in susceptibility, not an elimination of the pathogen. So in Australia, if we see any of this fowl brood in any of our hives, we'd still have to destroy the hives. However, there'd be other diseases, perhaps some viral diseases that reducing the level of that virus in a hive would be a wonderful outcome because we can't eliminate it completely. Do you think this will influence future research in this field? Do you think it's a step along that pathway? For sure. And I think that's probably why I'm the main excitement I have for this research is not necessarily the specific disease that they've been testing it against, but the potential that this could actually work for other diseases. You know, I think it might have to be sort of tested on a larger field scale as well. And I guess, too, learning more about that transgenerational immune priming and just how much does transfer to those young. Understanding anything to do with immunity in insects, we we know we have a fairly solid understanding of other immune pathways, but really nutting out how parent to offspring immune thriving can work would be really beneficial, especially in the more managed industries like honeybees, where we need that for our agriculture. 
Dr Emily Remnant from the University of Sydney speaking to Kaylee Buchanan. And it is worth noting that a spokeswoman for the Australian Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry says there are no vaccines approved for use in bees in Australia and no applications are currently being assessed. The ABC did reach out to the manufacturer to see if they intended to export that vaccine to Australia, but they did not reply. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. 29 past 12, no news headlines this afternoon, so it's off to the Bureau. Caroline Crow is today's duty forecaster. Good afternoon to you, Caroline. Good afternoon, Jess. Hey, let's uh, start things off in the Southwest Land Division this afternoon. Um, what's the situation today and for the next few days? Yeah, so the trough uh, that was mobile yesterday that brought all those thunderstorms uh, to inland parts of the south or eastern parts of the southwest land division and sort of inland uh, from the south coast is now moved quite far east and it's just sitting east of Esperance there. So in the wake of that, we're seeing a south southwesterly. Uh, airstream uh, and it's a bit moister as well because it's coming from the ocean so uh, we've got that moist southwesterly airstream and it's going to generally uh, stay fairly uh, quieter shall I say for the next couple of days. A a weak ridge uh, does uh, start to develop uh, towards the southwest behind uh, the the trough, um, and the winds are generally going to be fairly light over the southwest land division coming into uh, Thursday and Friday to start off with. We will see some fresh coastal uh, sea breezes, and along the south coast, uh, just uh, bringing that that southwest southeasterly uh, airstream um, will bring some showers and drizzle uh, to the south coast, mostly over the. The um, Esperance area and uh, through that southeast coastal district. Light falls, though, so le- expecting less than a millimetre. So that's for Thursday and Friday. Coming into Saturday, we've got a ridge then becoming a stronger ridge, then pushing through from the west and developing quite quickly. So we'll see the winds rapidly pick up uh, coming into Saturday uh, from the east to southeast. And so it's going to be pretty windy and pretty gusty potentially down the scarp as well with uh, showers and drizzle extending a little bit further inland. So through the southeast coastal district and possibly even getting into the south coastal district and even eastern parts of the Great Southern and maybe a little bit more in the falls, one to two millimetres and then for Sunday. That ridge then becomes really dominant. We've got a trough uh, deepening down the west coast and those east to uh, southeasterly winds are going to be once again pretty fresh and gusty through the southwest land division on Sunday. Okay and um, what's happening in the northern and the eastern forecast districts and, and what's the latest on that system in the Kimberley? Yeah, so starting in the Kimberley, uh, we've got a weak trough through the area there uh, and the thunderstorm activity has been a little bit more benign over uh, yesterday and uh, even today we're not expecting too much from it, just the isolated odd uh, thunderstorm during this afternoon and evening. So they're a little bit more diurnal through the Kimberley uh, today and coming into tomorrow, the thunderstorms uh, or gradually over the next couple of days, shall I say, Thursday, Friday and into the weekend, the thunderstorms are going to become a little bit more active and potentially we'll see a little bit more precipitation from them as well. So we could get the isolated fall 20 to 30 millimetres coming into the next couple of days and maybe on the weekend a touch more. Most of it looks as though it's going to be through northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley, um, but we could still see something uh, drop over those western parts or central parts uh, and even into the Fitzroy 
uh, catchment, uh, but it should be fairly isolated at this point in time. And then coming into... Um, the rest of the um, state, the thunderstorms are confined uh, to the Kimberley and the eastern parts of the interior for today and tomorrow. Um, and then coming into Friday and Saturday uh, and the weekend, we'll see those thunderstorms extend a little bit further east and south. So Friday, the thun- thunderstorms will extend further into the interior. Coming into Saturday, we'll see them extend into the eastern parts of the Pilbara and into the far north eastern parts of the Gascoigne as well. And then coming into Sunday, as we get that trough, as I mentioned, developed down the west coast, we'll see the thunderstorms starting to uh, extend further south uh, into those western and central parts of the state and even possibly getting into sort of southern parts of the gold fields there. Um, so that's most of the weather. I will just jump back up to the Kimberley, though, uh, regarding uh, the the Fitzroy River. So we're still seeing major flooding at uh, Wallaire. Uh, but it is receding and when the expectation is that it will uh, fall below major coming into Thursday and then uh, sitting at moderate potentially still into the weekend and uh, receding below uh, the minor threshold potentially uh, Tuesday or Wednesday next week. So it is above moderate but receding. Um, the Nukin Bar is uh, falling as well uh, with minor flooding um, and it is, oh, it's very close to minor if not actually possible possibly dropped just below minor recently and Fitzroy um, crossing uh, is also uh, continuing to recede as well. So there is still that major flood uh, warning out for the Fitzroy River for that Willare area. Finally, a bit of reprieve on the way by the looks of things. Now, are there any other, uh, any other warnings in place this afternoon that we need to be aware of, Caroline? Yes, so in the Kimberley, as well as that major flood warning uh, for the Fitzroy River, there's a final flood warning for the West Kimberley District. So there's still quite a bit of water around that Roebuck Plains area. So even though it's the final flood warning, uh, there is still some uh, impacts around. Uh, There's also a fire weather warning for the Ashburton Coast uh, Fire Weather District for today. Uh, There's a heat wave warning for the Pilbara, the South Interior and the Eucla with um, hot temperatures uh, during the day getting into the high 30s and low 40s and even the overnight temperatures being quite uh, warm as well, getting into the high 20s. And also there is coastal wind warning uh, for today for the Pilbara West Coast and then tomorrow the Pilbara West Coast and the Ningaloo Coast as well. Hey, Carolyn, thanks so much for that update. You have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too, Jess. ABC Radio Emergency Information. Now, there is an emergency bushfire warning for the area north of Preston National Park in the southwest. The emergency area is uh, also surrounded by a large watch and act warning, which includes the Noggerup town site. Just head on over to the emergency.wa.gov.au website for more and just keep listening to your ABC local radio. If you're in the southwest, the local team will still have regular updates for you throughout the afternoon. The next update is at 12.45 and you'll have more with Andrew Collins on Regional Drive this afternoon. And because of the extreme fire danger today, Wednesday the 11th of January, a total fire ban has been issued for the Ashburton Shire in the Pilbara during a total fire 
Saiban, you must not have any outdoor fires, including using solid fuel barbecues, carrying out hot work like grinding, welding and gas cutting, or go off-road driving in a four-wheel drive on a quad bike, motorbike or bobcat, except for agricultural reasons. And if there's a harvest and vehicle movement ban from your local government, you can't use off-road vehicles even for industry or agriculture. And you can see a map of the affected area at Emergency WA website and learn more about the do's and don'ts during a total fire ban at the DFES website. And an update on the flooding across the Kimberley region. Fitzroy River heights continue to ease, but it will remain above the major flood level in Willare for the next few days. You just heard from Caroline Crow. It is predicted to fall below the major flood level of 9.2 metres during tomorrow. Uh, DFES says there has been an increase in snake and crocodile activity in the Kimberley region as a result of the flooding, so please stay away from flooding. Floodwaters. For the latest on road closures, check the WA Main Roads Travel Map webpage for updates at travelmap.mainroads.wa.gov.au or you can just call 138 138. And disaster relief funding will provide grants of up to $10,000, which is being organised by the State Department of Communities, and they'll be visiting affected communities to help you apply. There's also a disaster relief uh, recovery allowance available if you can't get to work. It can be accessed through the Services Australia website. Uh, You just give the hotline a call on one. 802266 and there have been significant stock losses and there'll be freight subsidies arranged to help affected pastoralists and that's also being organised through the Department of Communities. The evacuation centre at the Fitzroy Crossing Recreation Centre is still in place and community food supplies are available from the Fitzroy Crossing Cafe. It is really important to remember floodwaters are likely contaminated so it's best to avoid it and avoid anything that's been touched by it. If you become un well, just call Health Direct on 1800 552 002 or if it's an emergency, call 000. And again, you can stay up to date at emergency.wa.gov.au. You can also follow along on the ABC Kimberley Facebook page or keep listening to ABC Radio. And again, we'll have all the latest details on Regional Drive with Andrew Collins this afternoon. And it's time to take a look at the rainfall totals for the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock. Uh, things have dried off in the Kimberley. Only two mills at Kununurra. Great news for the recovery effort. Uh, in the Pilbara, Yarry has received 11 mills and nothing over five mills across the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts. And only a few light falls across the lower west, southwest, southern coast, central, wheat belt and great southern, but nothing over five mills and nothing at all in the central west. 22 minutes to one on the country hour and the shearing industry has been hit hard by ongoing labour shortages. And producers say it's still very hard to attract young people to work in the sheds. But Jared King, who farms at Gardner, 150 kilometres northeast of Albany, has upgraded his shed in a, in a bid to try and address the issue. Behind the shearing stands, instead of a traditional pen-like setup, he's installed a race where shearers are able to get hold of the sheep with less drag time. And he's seeing the results because the system has decreased injury rates and improved overall efficiency by 10%. So the sheep come along in a line instead of into the traditional catching pen where there'd be 10 or 15 sheep in a pen and the shearer walks in and catches one and then drags it back out through the doors, which on average I think was about, most shearing systems was about five and a half metres of drag. So we've alleviated all of that and, um, yeah, the sheep runs along in a in a race and, um, yeah, they open a door which is slightly elevated, 350 mil off the ground and, yeah, the sheep just drops straight down at their feet, two steps backwards and, yeah, they're ready to shear. 
What sort of difference has it made this shearing season having that? Oh, it was fantastic this year and now. Um, it was the first year we'd, we'd used it and trialled it and we were uh, quite apprehensive, but it worked really well. We've worked on, on on average shearing another 10% cheap a day and at the end of the day the shearers walked out. Uh, like they were ready to come back to work. What were the key benefits from using this? Key benefits, I think, is there's less strain on the shearer. The catch and drag system, I think. Some of the uh, statistics we saw, I think they thought 75 to 80 percent of the injuries came from the the catch and drag in the shearing industry. So that was one thing we were we were looking at when we built this system to try and try and make it easier for the shearers. Do you think this system will be widely adopted? I think so. We had an AWI-funded demonstration day and uh, information day on the shed. And, yeah, there was a lot of positivity come out of it. People that want to stay in the shearing industry and the sheep industry, um, I think we need to be making these changes to, to make it all just work that little bit easier. With these changes that you did make, did you struggle in the way that we've heard some other shearers have issues this year with staffing and time? Over the time that uh, I've been in the in the sheep industry, we've definitely had periods where getting shearers has been difficult, but that was part of the reasoning behind going to the shearing race system. We knew there was going to be, a, well, there is a declining shearing uh, numbers in the industry, so we wanted to, um, yeah, create a facility that we want to be able to attract people to come and work in and keep coming back. How much would you say the shearing race has saved you in inputs? I think it's definitely, from a, from building a new shed perspective, I think it's definitely cheaper than building catching pens. It's not as fiddly a, a setup, so there's probably a, a labour saving there in, in the builds. And, yeah, as I say, we have to employ an extra person to push the sheep up constantly, whereas the, the presser would have done it in the old system. But now the presser's able to help out on the, on the floor with the rouseabouts, which seem to make the whole shed just work a lot better. How easy is this for other farmers to implement? You don't have to build a brand new shed to implement this system. It can be retrofitted into any existing shed. So with a bit of yeah, knowledge and know-how, I think it would work in any, any sort of shed. Where do you see the future in this space? Uh, well, I'd like to think the sheep industry and the shearing industry is, is bright. Yeah, I think there's still plenty of money to be made out of sheep that still carry wool. And yeah, hopefully we can still keep attracting young people to, to be in the shearing industry because it's a good money earner. As I said to you before, it's just I think we need to, as an industry, be proactive in making sure that we're looking after our shearers and and our sheep too. It's the welfare of our stock that we think is very important. Jared King, who runs a mixed sheep cropping operation at Gardner, north of Albany. So moving away from a traditional pen set up in his shearing shed towards a race behind the shearing stands, and it's all about easing those labour shortage pressures that we've just heard so much about and that just continue to squeeze industry. Now, Jock Laurie is the chairman of Australian Wool Innovation. He says AWI is seeing more interest from producers looking at alternative systems than ever. Oh, look, there's a lot of interest and understandably so. I think people have been very keen to have a look and see you know, what other, what other options they have when it comes to crutching and shearing, not just shearing, of course, crutching and shearing and you know, trying to find ways where they can take some of that physical component out of it but also allow other people to enter the industry that otherwise wouldn't have been too keen. So there has been a lot of interest but there's also, you know, everybody understands a great need. We're in a very competitive marketplace both domestically and internationally when it comes to, you know, attracting labour. The wool industry is no different to any other industry, I can assure you, and uh, we need to make sure that we're providing all the tools we possibly can to make that easier for people. Both short-term and long-term, how can these issues be addressed? 
Well, I think we need to understand what the issues of concern are, and certainly in the shearing and crutching area, it's the catch and drag, and that's why a lot of those systems have been developed to try and take some of that catch and drag out of it. There's new shed designs, work that's going on all the time to try and eliminate some of that physical component out of it. And then obviously, you know, a lot of the training we're doing in regard to technique around shearing is all aimed at, you know, trying to get pace up, keep quality up, but at the same time, make it easier for people to be able to do it. But having said that, we're also looking at, you know, any other options we possibly can. You know, there's a continual look at to see whether there's work can be done on robotics. Uh, and we know that robotics are being used in many other areas, but you're dealing with a live animal this time, so there's a bit of a difficulty there. You know, there's by shearing some work we're doing that in Adelaide University, looking at finding ways to, to be able to put a brake in the stable and then get the stable off to make sure that we can uh, do that without doing the traditional way of shearing. So there's lots of things we're looking at to try and overcome the problem. Australian Wool Innovation Chairman Jock Laurie ending that reporting from Sophie Johnson. And speaking of the worker shortage, this year 180,000 fee-free TAFE places are on offer in Australia as a result of a joint initiative between state and federal governments. Now, the courses included in the initiative are targeted at industries with recognised skills shortages like agriculture. The inclusion of agriculture in the fee-free places comes as unprecedented labour shortages continue to impact the industry. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Across the country, Australians will be able to access agriculture courses such as a Diploma of Agriculture, Certificate 2 in Wine Industry Operations, Certificate 3 in Brewing, Diploma of Conservation and Ecosystem Management and a Certificate 3 in Dairy Production for free in 2023. Describing the current labour climate as a workforce crisis, Queensland Farmers Federation CEO Joe Shepherd welcomes the inclusion of agriculture in the fee-free TAFE placements. It's really, really pleasing to see that agriculture has been included in the free TAFE placements that have been announced. Obviously, ag is an essential industry for the broader community. Um, So it's really important that we support farmers and the whole supply chain right across the sector throughout this workforce crisis. So um, obviously, like many other industries, agriculture in Queensland is facing extreme workforce shortages, and this is having a real impact on farm, on production capability. Um, We are aware of farmers who are significantly reducing or changing what they are planting this season, or in some cases not planting at all, because they're just not confident that they'll be able to source the workforce um, needed at half, harvest time to get the crop, crop off. Um, so we're really pleased to see that agriculture has, has been included. Where university doesn't quite fit your education mould, TAFE does offer qualifications for those wanting to pursue a career in agriculture, like Trinity Johnston. Miss Johnston studied a Certificate 3 in Rural Operations in Toowoomba last year. TAFE is honestly one of the best decisions I've made for myself which is surprising. I didn't have any real expectations going in because, you know, expectations build disappointment and all that. But I I really love TAFE. Um, I was very sad to have finished it and have to leave, but it was really fun. It's the best learning experience I've had so far. It was very hands-on. There's a... We did all our theory in Toowoomba, so we spent one day of the week doing that. And then other times that TAFE actually has a farm in Warwick, uh, so we'd go out and go to the farm and for the other days and, you know, run around on quads and chase after cattle and do sheep and 
plough fields, just anything. TAFE Queensland teacher Vanessa Kane grew up on a property in Narrabri, northwest New South Wales. Now teaching agriculture and rural operations in Toowoomba, Ms Kane hopes fee-free courses will provide relevant skills to workers entering the industry. As a TAFE teacher, it is a requirement to be to have not only the qualification but actually have industry experience um, and then it is a requirement um, to be a teacher to keep that industry um, placement and knowledge up to date uh, so that we are still up to date with trends um, and keeping current in the industry. Um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for many people that are trying to uh, source a job um, and the most exciting thing about agriculture is the industry uh, is so vast in its job requirements and opportunities within the industry. It ranges from being on the ground working with animals um, through to tech, uh, the innovation that is coming through to for improvements on um, production is, is just fantastic. So it really is a, a broad um, area. So basically with Anyone with any interest uh, can find a job in the agriculture sector. For those currently on the land, TAFE does offer recognition of prior learning to help get your qualification quicker. But QFF CEO Joe Shepherd says for the government's initiative to be successful in drawing new labour to agriculture, it has to reflect the industry's needs. So often uh, in agriculture... You know, training is needed in regional and sometimes very remote areas and sometimes this training is, um, you know, needed to be delivered to small groups of employees. Uh, The simple economics of delivering training where it's needed in ag sometimes doesn't stack up with the current delivery models, which are significantly focused on high volumes of students. Having now completed her TAFE qualifications, Trinity Johnston is now off to work her dream job on an outback station. I am going to Western Australia uh, in the Kimberley region, which is the farthest west you can go from me, to work on Napier Downs station. So I essentially just want to be like a station hand. I want to know everything there is to know because there's so much. And I'm very surprised that I got that job because it's a very big operation and the advertisement actually asked for experienced station hands and I'm not an experienced station hand like I have a knowledge base and like skills base but I'm definitely not experienced so I'm very lucky. TAFE student Trinity Johnston ending that report from Lucy Cooper. So Trinity off to Napier Down Station in WA's North describing it as her dream job and wishing her the best of luck in her new role as a station hand. What do you think? Will free agriculture TAFE courses be enough to ease the labour squeeze? And how are you going getting labour at your place? Is it still a major issue for you? Let me know. 0448 Nine to one on the Country Hour. And I'm wondering this afternoon, have you ever tried a durian? Now, it's that notoriously stinky fruit that has a fragrance so pungent, it's even banned on public transport in some Asian countries. Now, the durian season is wrapped up for the year in the Northern Territory, and unfortunately it was well below average. Michelle Stanley hit the road to find out why. Yeah, you can kind of smell it. Can I smell it? Yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, it doesn't smell really strong, but I'm sure if it was ripe, it would. It'll be a lot riper, it'll be a lot stronger. My name is Han Xiong Xia. I'm from Tropical Primary Products out at Lambles Lagoon. 
It doesn't smell as I thought it might because there aren't that many durian around or really no ripe ones. What's going on? Uh, this year we had a very poor season. For, uh, we had a phenomenal flowering in August. However, the weather was quite warm then. So a lot of the flowers didn't develop to fruit, which was a very bum for us. But um, yeah, so we've, we ended about close to five tons of durian this year again. It's, it's a, we were expecting a little bit more than that, but it was also very late. What were you expecting? We were probably expecting close to about 15 to 20 tons. We were we were concerned about the amount of fruit that we wouldn't get with the amount of the prolific flowering we had. However, the warmer than average temperature in August, the fruit didn't set and we were pretty um, upset. Yeah, it sound as, sounds as though it was set to be a bumper and instead it's been the opposite. How does it feel as a grower when you think you're sitting on quite a crop? Well, it's each year is different, you know. One year you could have good year, one year you could have bad year. You just can't predict the weather, you can't predict the the, the future. So we just take it one one day at a time, and we just we just hope it'll be a better year next year. So what has that done for your markets? If you thought you were going to have maybe even an oversupply and it's gone the opposite way, how's that played out? Well, there's not much food on the market, so the the price stayed up a little bit more higher than we were expecting. We didn't peak until like Christmas which was we're about three weeks behind as well. So so that time really well, the fruits that arrived to the market in Christmas Day were sold out. And then the shipment after that, unfortunately, got stuck on the way down to Sydney. With more weather, I'm assuming? Correct. Yeah, it was stuck on the Barclay Highway. Left Christmas Day and, and unfortunately um, it got stuck on that, that trip between um, Barclay Homestead and the Mount Isa. So it got delayed by four days. So it arrived four days late. Was it then, you know, saleable? Uh, we lost a portion of it, maybe about 30%, but I think everything else was moved for the, new, for the new year period, I guess. With that, if you've had less supply and the price has held up a little bit more than expected, has it, how, how has it played out for your bottom line? This year's definitely a loss for us, for Durant. Most years, is, it's either break-even or, or a loss. Durant itself, is, is, it's a very intensive crop that we haven't perfected yet. Being in northern Australia, it is a hard crop to grow. Uh, being uniquely, um, we have two distinct seasons, whereas durian is grown in the tropics, true tropical trees, whereas we've got the, 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 the real tr- tropics and then the real dry season, which has just played havoc to the trees. Sometimes you're going to be on the wall and trying to make sure the trees survive the dry season or survive the, the great flooding of the Northern Territory. It's um, typically, I've been told, I've never experienced it before, a very smelly crop and not a very delicious crop, but I guess that depends on who you are. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the the market? Who is eating this notoriously stinky fruit? vast majority of Southeast Asian customers uh, that, that would eat it or Asian customers that would eat it. They, like it for the, they follow the nose for the aroma. And then after that, it's the, the texture is like a sweet custard with a little bit of aftertaste of really strong garlic. However, there's been a um, push towards a lot of the people who, who don't eat meat, like the meat alternate guys, the, the vegans, they, they've started eating this as their protein or their carbohydrate supplement. So they've also started getting to these durians. If you notice, they have that. But most of our customers are generally Asian customers who do miss it when they don't get to go home. Especially in the last three years when the lockdown's been, they weren't able to travel, so they still were able to get some fresh durian in Australia. We've heard that the supply has been disappointing for you this year, mm-hmm. but demand, how has that changed over the last few years? There has been a lot of interest coming towards the farm. People are very surprised that we do grow durian in Australia, and we've been doing it for years. 
it's just I haven't know about it historically and I guess through social media and, and I guess marketing and through the country hour and that, that they have heard about us growing during Australia and they all want to try it so they have paid a visit to us once in a while or they've tried to look for it in the Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide market and sometimes Brisbane and Perth market so from there it's grown a lot and I think the industry will grow eventually. So you've, you're not really making a profit and there's not really a lot of fruit around. And, I, you know, I'd like, like this to be a really positive story, Han. It, I really was really hopeful. But you're still here and I don't know whether it's a grimace or a smile on your face. You, you're still happy to continue growing the durian? Yeah, my parents say just keep going. You know, it's, eventually it will turn around. Eventually you find something. You know, when we first came, we, we lost trees after trees after trees. You know, when we first arrived through quarantine, we had, what, 40 trees through quarantine. Two popped out after two years. You know, you tried a different method. You try this, you try that. You have to keep going. You know, if you don't keep going, um, um, you know, it's, it, you, you look at back and you say, what a waste. So eventually, I guess, we'll just keep going until um, we do really throw the, throw the, uh, the hat in. Durian farmer Han Xianxia. Uh, speaking with Michelle Stanley, unfortunately, volumes of durian well down this year, but price is healthy. So that's one upside. And I actually Google what durian smells like and descriptions online include sweaty gym clothes, rotting meat and even raw sewerage. No thanks. Four minutes, three minutes to one on The Country Hour. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency emergency broadcaster. broadcaster. Now, as I mentioned, it's almost time to head to the news, but first it's time to head to the markets. And there was a sheep sale today at Katanning, 8,431 head yarded, up 5,650 on last week's sale. Tracy Kilner was there. Hey, Tracy, can you walk us through today's sale? An additional 5,000 head offered this week for a total yarding of 8,431 mixed quality sheep. Prices trended up with a large gallery of buyers represented by an extra processor, regular feeder buyers and numerous restockers. Air freight and trade weight lambs gained $20, while small numbers of heavyweight lambs were in demand, topping at $170 a head. Mutton dominated the yarding with heavy full wool merino ewes topping at $108 and restockers bid to $111 for the lighter weight ewes. The lightweight lambs made from $25 to $85, Heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight lambs made 85 to 129. That was for merino restocker lambs with a fleece. Trade weight lambs sold from 110 to 147. Heavy lambs 130 to 158. And a pen of extra heavy lambs sold for $170 a head. A mixed quality yarding of merino hoggets saw ewes sell from 36 to $80 and weathers from 30 to $102 a head. Store ewes were up, selling from $33 to $80. Prime medium weight ewes made $83 to $111 to restockers and processors paid from $65 to $90. Heavy ewes sold from $70 to $108 a head. Mature rams gained with demand, selling from $20 to $87. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for that, Tracy. And she will be back on tomorrow to wrap this week's Mount Barker cattle sale. Now, that's almost all 
I have for you on the country hour today. But remember, for more rural news at any time, you can head on over to the ABC Rural website. That's abc.net.au slash rural. Or you can head on over to the ABC Rural Facebook page as well, where we have the latest rural news and information. That's it from me for today. Have a great afternoon. It's news time now, one o'clock.